Assalamu alaikum and welcome to another episode of Network Reorient. Today, as part of the Crescent Lecture Series, we have with us Dr. Ismail Patel, the Director of Friends of Al-Aqsa, talking on Islamophobia, social mobility and Britishness. Assalamu alaikum. Dr. Ismail, how are you today? Alhamdulillah, very good. Are you okay? We find ourselves in some very uh, weird and trying times at the moment. So I hope you're doing well. Yes, under the testing conditions, I think uh, we're bearing up quite well. The family is well and the people that we know are doing reasonably okay. So I suppose we should say Alhamdulillah for that. Alhamdulillah, yeah. So uh, just to start off, I want you to introduce yourself and what do you do for our listeners? Well, <laughs> a little bit of a long uh, passage That's for fine. that, I suppose. That's fine. Uh, I, okay, I came into academia uh, very late, shall I say. Uh, I spent 20, 25 years in, as a primary health worker and political activist and then entered into academia from science, into social sciences. And that, that's where I've ended up, ended up uh, doing with a post-doctoral studies in Islamophobia, I suppose. And that's why I'm here with you today. Ah, okay. That's uh, very concise. <laughs> uh, I thought you said it was going to be long. <laughs> very concise. Very concise and very good. Okay, so what I basically want to do is ask you a couple of... Well, couple quite a few questions basically on um some work that you've done recently so the first and obviously as we go on if there's tangents we'll just follow them through as best we can so you recently have done uh, some work on social mobility and islamophobia yeah sure. so i just want to yes. basically mine this a bit more so the first question i want to ask is do you think history has had an impact on the social mobility of young Muslims. And when I say history here, I'm thinking of two particular periods of history. The first is colonialism, starting sure. with, uh, for Muslims, obviously, starting with Napoleon coming into Egypt is the usual date that's given. Um, and yeah. the second being where our parents, grandparents were invited over come to Britain to work in the factories, sure. the migrations of the 60s, 70s, 80s, whichever wave. The post-colonial people. Yes, basically. So I want to, to focus on these two in your answer, because I'm very interested to know how far back uh, the effects or the amount of social mobility young Muslims have today, how is that affected by the, those historical periods? Sure. Uh, let's uh, before I answer the sort of more historical aspect of it. Let's sort of put an outline of what problems that young Muslims are facing at the moment. Yeah. Um, there's a very interesting report by the British government that was published in September 2017, with a lot of statistics, all indicating how social mobility is restricted for young Muslims. Uh, I don't want to give you a lot of data on that, but just give you two to so so that it gives us a background. Uh, where 24% of Muslims are classified as having never worked in long-term employment as compared to the 6% of overall population. That's a phenomenal difference. The second data is 46% of Muslim population 
live in 10% of the most deprived local authorities. Now, as I mentioned, there's a lot more. But what is very interesting mm-hmm. is then that this study carry, goes forward to say that overrepresented at universities. We are about 14% of the university student population as compared to the 8% of white population from the general population go up to higher university education. However, when we look at the very small print into that, we find that 60% of BME students study in what was previously known as polytechnics. And Mm. only 4% attend Russell Group universities. Mm. So the initial indication that Muslims are a higher percentage of Muslims go to university, but when we look at it much more deeper, we find that there is also bias there. And this is very interesting because what the report then itself concludes that there's a broken social mobility promise in Britain for young Muslims. Mm. And it goes to identify three particular reasons. One, it says there's insufficient career advice. The second, it mentions there's an informal network that lacks an access for Muslims. In, in effect, says they don't have a, a peer hierarchy where they can go across. But the third yeah. point is very important, and it uses the word discrimination in the recruitment process, which we identify as Islamophobia. Okay. So overall, the, re- the research suggests that young Muslims feel a real challenge in maintaining their identity while seeking to succeed in Britain. And this is verbatim the conclusion from the report. Okay. Now, this brings us back to your question of history. Yeah. That if the identity itself, Muslim identity, is being an obstacle to their success, is this something new or has it been part of what you were mentioning right at the beginning, Hazar? Yeah. And what I would like to point towards uh, is the fact that Muslim have failed or their, their, their idea of a worldview, their epistemology are not being accepted to be part of Britain. And this mm. is the biggest obstacle that we've had. And this goes back across the spectrum of the Muslim West relationship, where Muslimness itself, in a different manner and construct, have come to obstruct Britishness. Now, there's something very important here we must say that we should not consider a Muslim West antagonism throughout history to be the same. If we go down that path, I think we a trans-historical reading of Muslim West would be very detrimental to trying to overcome Islamophobia itself. We have mm-hmm. to understand that the Islamophobia that is being experienced now by young Muslims is completely different to anti-Muslim sentiments of colonialism that you mentioned despite the fact that there was antagonism at that stage. But that formulation was constructed on different parameters and paradigms that it is being done now. Mm. Yeah. Okay, I just want to, because I'm just, there's something that you mentioned that I want to kind of tease out uh, a bit of a tangent, if you will. You mentioned that um, uh, Muslims have failed in having or muslims have failed in making well now i'm letting the cat out of the bag making themselves accepted in britain and i would suggest that this actually goes into another debate uh which is linked to the social mobility debate which is the integration assimilation 
debate. Sure. Which one do we, do we want to do? Do we want to integrate and assimilate? I just want to get some of your thoughts on that as sure. well, because that's quite a big area that quite links to social mobility, the idea that if we were more integrated or even assimilated, then these problems wouldn't exist. This is something that you hear from, you know, the far right. Uh, this is far right thinking that, you know, if only they were more like yeah. us, then these problems wouldn't exist. And this is why, you know, um, the newest uh, branch of the far right always um, calls for st- ethno states where each sure. state has its own ethnicity. So, you know, they're all like each other. So these problems won't exist. I wanted to get your kind of thoughts on this. If I mentioned that it was the problem of Muslims failing to integrate, I think what I really meant to say is the Britishness failed to integrate Muslims into its ah, structure. That way yeah. around, okay, yeah. Yes, it's so not. What does that mean? Think, it means that Britishness itself has come, as you mentioned very clearly, this the ethnoscape of Britain is whiteness. Mm. And it's the failure of whiteness to absorb not just Muslims, the, the whole ethnic minorities in Britain. If you look at how the, the Afro-Caribbean community was treated. Prior to that, the Jewish community was treated. Now the Muslims, uh, the Sikh community in between. This problem has been a British problem, not the problem of the ethnic minorities. It is the failure of Britishness to absorb anything else that is not white or Eurocentric, uh, in effect, causes the problem. And I think we should be very, very specific and particular about that. Mm. Okay. Now, I want to kind of um, riff off that a bit and ask you a kind of double-barreled question, to be honest. So this is going to be... So we've mentioned Islamophobia quite a bit. Uh, I want to kind of get your take on what is Islamophobia, because this, as you're probably... Well, you are aware, is very contested uh, at the moment and has always been, to be honest, since the term was invented. But also, I want to get your sense of how what Britishness is, is tied into Islamophobia. And I want to get your views specifically on Britishness being explicitly stated in the um, concept or concepts of what we now know as the British values that were released. So I just want to get your thoughts on that and the linkages between the two. Okay, um, let's go back a little bit. I mean, all concepts are contested. So I don't think we should be worried about that. If they were not contested, you know, then they're not serving a purpose, really. Then I think we've all stopped being critical and we've stopped thinking of ourselves as human beings. So I think we should be quite uh, content and be reassured in the fact that it's been contested. I think it's quite good stuff. It gets us to think, reformulate our ideas, become more confident, be able to articulate our position. Let's try and think what Islamophobia is. Normally, the easy way out of it is to simply state it's a construct, okay. uh, and therefore it's construct. But how do, is it constructed? And this is where I think we have to become a little bit more nuanced. Mm. Any construct emerges through a political struggle. So an idea is transformed through a political struggle. So that, that's your first stage uh, after a construct. But a li- the, the political struggle itself emerges because of competing discourses or ideas. Otherwise, there would be no construct itself. So that's our second yeah. level. The third level after that, that the political struggle itself does not occur in a neutral zone. There's power knowledge imbalance. Yeah. So this is where the Eurocentric stru- structures that try to maintain white privilege comes into play. 
Hence, what you have now to go back a bit is you have a power knowledge imbalance that is trying to maintain a certain political construct in which you have the Muslim or Muslimness competing against that, that performs a political struggle and a construct is created. Mm. And this is very important. This comes to your second part, Hezer, that what is being constructed about Muslimness, what is being neutralized if you, or naturalized, excuse me, what is being naturalized about Muslimness? Here we have symbols of Muslimness that come to do the work to arouse the emotions and fear that the Eurocentrics consider as a problem. So you have the hijab, the minaret, the word the halal, Muslim uh, attire, Arabic terms like Allahu Akbar, all these things then are aroused to create a discourse in which Muslims are shown as to be incompatible with the West. The central line, I suppose, in here is the post-colonial condition is such that the Muslim presence in the West is seen as religious and therefore not compatible to the Western uh, secular society. Mm. So you have Muslimness being constructed as a problem. And this also goes back to our original question in the first part, where we talked about the constructing of Muslim being different during the colonial time to now. Mm. Uh, here you see the symbols of Muslims now interfering within Britishness. So you have the idea of a hijab not being constructed as a Muslim identity and being not part of a British Britishness or British culture or British society. And this is where you have this idea that the Britishness has a problem with Muslimness. Mm. Okay. I just want to um, tease out some of the, sure. um, because I asked some of the relations between all of this with the notion of British values. Sure. And then what you kind of think then, what is the function of British values in all of this then? Is it basically the policing of Muslimness? Is it basically setting something up in opposition to Muslimness? What, what do you think the function of British values, quote-unquote, is? I don't think it's directly equated to policing Muslimness or going against what Muslimness stands for, but it performs that task. Uh, yeah. It's employed to perform that task. And we have to understand it's not... I don't think there's a, a conspiracy here or, or uh, people... Uh, politicians getting around the table to see how we should confront Muslimness. This emerges through discourses from different arenas and areas that then creates a logic in which it becomes hegemonic. Uh, and you have the British values themselves that are tilted towards uh, symbols that be, can be used against Muslimness. And the application of that is opportunistic. They do not, they do not appear as the um, what I'm looking for is they're not pre-planned. It's it's not a yeah. strategy, yeah. But opportunities, mm. opportunism. So excuse me. Opportunity of, uh, is used by certain mm. segments of society to use that aspect of British values against Muslimness. Okay, all right. So it's deployed where it's needed. You're saying that's right. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay, I just want to uh, rewind back a bit, and you mentioned earlier on um, three things that young Muslims feel hampered 
by, um, but I want to focus on two for now. So you said that uh, young Muslims feel hampered by, I think it was insufficient careers advice. Yeah. And then lack of access to informal networks, like a yeah. hierarchy of peers you mentioned. Sure. Um, and this is a small question, I guess. <laughs> How would you go about correcting this? <laughs> I, that's the most difficult question. Uh, yeah. Anybody, yeah. I, it's very easy to sometimes theorize, but it is very, very yeah. difficult to provide, if you like, solutions yeah. to counter it. But I think this is the, the, the wider question you're asking me is, what is anti-Islamophobia strategies? Yeah, I guess so, because obviously if you feel that insufficient careers advice and lack of access to informal networks comes out of Islamophobia, sure. then the root cause of it is Islamophobia, therefore you need to... Fine, so I guess, yes, you're right, I, that's why I'm asking. Yeah, you're asking me anti-Islamophobia strategies. Let me take you there to... You let me take you to a, an Orientalist, Rudyard Kipling, for this. Uh, most of us okay. have seen a book called The Jungle Book at some, sta yeah. some stage in our life. It's very interesting, this book, uh, and the story it narrates. Because we have a young uh, Mowgli who's left in the jungle and is raised by the animals. And here we have an idea of rootedness, to be belonging to a place. Mowgli, mm -hmm. despite being loved by his uh, fellow animals, there's one exception to them, Sher Khan. And because of that, he's asked to leave his home, his, where he wants to be, uh, because he's, he cannot overall belong to that entity. What we have here is an Orientalist telling us, or a metaphor, that there is certain group of people cannot belong in another territory. And they have to live irrespective of some loving them or liking them. And they have their own place to go to. We have here to understand that anti-Islamophobia strategies must be able to overcome the idea of rootedness of what Britishness or Britain means. Who are the group of people who be part of Britain? And we are the Mowgli's the ethnic minority and the Muslims. So to overcome this, you have several routes you can use. You can use education, you can go and educate people. You can demand legal redress by asking for a definition of Islamophobia, uh, and hopefully that could help you. Or you could use qualitative approach, like certain strategies to go against say, prevent work against that or any other strategies that might appear to be Islamophobic. Or you can use what the American model has done, civil rights movement. Mm. Now, the thing is, if you look at the general landscape of Britain, we are doing all this. In one way or the other, we're using all these four approaches. Despite that, despite all these approaches that are being used, the latest home figure statistics of October 2019 show that 47% of all religious head crime offenses were targeted against Muslims. In effect, what we, all these strategies that are being employed are not sufficient. They're not bad. I'm not saying we shouldn't do this, but they're not sufficient. In effect, civil rights movement, if you look at what happened in America, if I just digressed a little bit, since 1964, yeah. when Civil Rights Act was passed, racial disparities in America are continuing. The racism mm. of police bullets, the health disparity and employment rate, Everything you can think of now in the COVID-19, the deaths of the African-Americans is highest amongst the, the black community. 
All these things mm. indicate that while we need to employ this means, it's not sufficient. What this is showing us is the ethne, the idea of Mowgli belonging to that jungle, that myth that has to be created, that has been created, has to be destroyed or has to be countered. Mm. Uh, and it, we should not be seen as those who have settled here as infiltrators, but we should be seen as equal. And this dynamic is something that is very, very important. And this also mm. brings us to understanding that what we're trying to do is we're not trying to bring about a race-less society. Because if we're trying to do that, we'd be asking for equality on the terms that there should be no difference between Muslims and the non-Muslims or any ethnic minority and the white. We want that difference, but we want that mm. difference not to create a discourse of disparity and hierarchy. That is okay. the crux, if you like. I think you can, you're going to ask me a lot more questions on this now. Yeah, 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 yeah. You, you know me too well. Um, actually, this brings us right back to the integration assimilation debate. Sure. I'd want to ask then, is what you, so from what I gathered, and obviously correct me if I'm wrong, um, so your path to overcome the idea of rootedness that you were mentioning, so yeah. getting rid of the Mowgli myth, uh, I'm going to start calling it, I'm stealing that off you, by the way. Um, do you think then something like calling for integration on our own terms would be useful? Uh, yes. Or is that a dead end? It's, it's, a, it's a difficult one. It is something that we have, to have a, we have to have our own language. That is the most important thing, if that's mm. what you mean. Yeah. But you see, what we're asking for is anti-Islamophobia is not a reversal of Islamophobia. And that's, as mm. I mentioned earlier, it's not about a race-less society. It is rather the depoliticization of differences. And if we're going to depoliticize difference, we have to have our own language. That's, that's a primary starting point. And then what we need mm. to do is the differences, what we need to promote is not equality on the basis of being part of, becoming part of the sameness of Britain, Britishness, but the difference being Britain. So in fact, what we're asking that the ethne of what is understood as Britishness needs to change. It can no longer mm. mean being white. It can no longer simply mean uh, having uh, values that, that are only applicable or acceptable by a certain group of people. It has to include everybody who is re resident within this jungle that we call Britain. Mm. It's, okay. it's basically a reconfiguration of colonial hierarchy that, that's employed to privilege and protect one group of people. We need to overcome that. Uh, if you look okay. at it from the other side, it is challenging white privilege. Mm. Okay. Um, we could go into a lot about this. Uh, I don't want to go on too many tangents because then it's just yeah. going to, um, it'll be hard thinking of a title for this <laughs> episode, to be honest. Um, but obviously, um, what I want to do then is I want to, you mentioned something else in your work actually, and I think now is actually a good time to bring it in because we're talking about responses sure. to Islamophobia, anti-Islamophobia. Um, and I want to basically 
ask you about something that you seem to not have much time for, um, from what I gathered, is you talk about the politics of respectability. Mm-hmm. Could you please explain what this is for our listeners and why do you find it problematic? Well, it goes back to the strategies of anti-Islamophobia. That how, yeah. how do we counter this? And I've mentioned the first four categories, which I don't want to repeat again. But basically, yeah. if you look at the politics of respectability, it's not, first thing, it's, it's not something new. This strategy uh, was employed by the African-Americans over 100 years ago, uh, in which mm. they were trying to be accepted or acceptable to the white community. So they started yeah. employing strategies or means so that their performances are such that the white community would see them as reasonable, acceptable, and they become what doesn't disturb the discourse and the vision and the idea of what whiteness is. That was in America. Mm. Muslims are also unfortunately trying to veer towards that way in trying to counter Islamophobia. So what and, and you have the examples I can give you here, which we do is we have a hijab there. So you try uh, or you have share iftar with a Muslim. You have uh, Islamic Awareness Week, all these things that we're trying to do. Islamist peace logos and banners and on buses, yeah. all these things that we're trying to do, show and, and do. Or jihad is not uh, a violence. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's about your, your nafs. To, to cut them into bite sizes means we're trying mm. to please or appease uh, the West, and particularly the, the right-wing element of the West that actually doesn't see us uh, being compatible with it, with it anyway in the first place. Mm. And this shifts responsibility from the perpetrator to the victim. Because now as a victim, mm. you have to prove yeah. yourself, you're okay, you're the good guy, please don't hate me. Yeah, rather than saying, you know why, you are, why are you hating me? You are, you are the problem for hating me. So the victim is now having to work uh, and justify his position rather than the perpetrator. And that is very important. And this is politics of respectability. What respectability tells us that historically, oppressed group must police themselves. So what we're doing in effect mm. is we're starting to police ourselves. And, and you know, this is very harmful. Because once you become mm. introspective in respect to the violence that is being perpetrated upon you, means you, your mind becomes colonized, you're starting faulting about yourself, and you become insecure. And, and this is, uh, mm. you, have, you, you lose your sense of belonging, you lose the sense of your values, your, your, ethnic, your ethnicity, uh, your epistemology, more important than that, of who you are, where you are and your vision and what contribution you can give to the wider community because you're simply be mm, yes. mimicking the wider society then. You, you know, you become a, a mm. shell uh, without a, any thought pattern at all. And it also provides a false sense of security of who you, who you think you are. Yeah. So you have, mm. as a Social Mobility Commission has shown us, that despite everything that's being done by Muslims, uh, in effect, by going to university is being respectable politics. You know, the, the, for general society says, work hard, go, go to university, get a degree, you'll get a job. Well, it doesn't happen for Muslims. I'm sorry. It's not happening. So it's not paying off. That doesn't mean don't go to university. I'm not saying that. 
What I'm trying to say is do all those stuff, but do it on your terms and on your grounds. Yeah. It also social. Okay. If we go along on this path of politics of responsibility, it reduces Islamophobia to cultural context rather than the institutional and the hegemonic discourse that we need to understand and it demands us to, to look at mm. for anti-Islamophobia strategy. In fact, what I'm saying uh, in a very crude way that politics of respectability are not efficient way of countering Islamophobia. Uh, they can be used. Uh, there's a time and a place for it, but it is not something we should be invested heavily into because and that is what's happening now and we need to counter that. Okay, I just want to play uh, devil's advocate um, for a bit because I've heard um, an argument for what we, what we would call the politics of respectability where people are basically saying, well, um, you know, we need to do dawah to the wider community. We need to show, you know, everybody that we're not, uh, all Muslims are not the same, sure. we're not all terrorists, etc., etc. It's usually in the vein of terrorism that, this argument is made. So I wanted to get your thoughts on that. What do you think? Sure. I mean, uh, about that. The thing is, you may want to do that and you might want to discuss that one to one basis. But overall, as a strategy, it does not work. I mean, if you ask the general public, uh, if you go to uh, who are majority non Muslims, uh, in particular, let's say they're white non Muslims, because we're talking about whiteness here and Britishness, you ask them if they've ever thought of or read about Muslim is peace. Most majority will say yes. Mm. They know that. It's not that they're ignorant of that fact. Mm. But will they know that the oppression by the establishment upon Muslims, of how Muslims are being monitored, of how Muslims are being profiled at, at airports, of how Muslims cannot get jobs, they will have not heard of that. So yes, mm. let's talk about there's nothing wrong in saying Islam believes in peace and we have a certain uh, input to this, we can make to the, to the society that will be beneficial to everybody and we should do that. But we shouldn't invest wholly on that and expect that to result in uh, the society to love us. We have to first act mm. uh, and, and show oh, the discrimination against us and show the, the fault within the structures and the systems uh, that we are facing. Uh, and use that as a platform as well. Mm. Okay, uh, thank you very much, Dr. Ismail. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much, Isa, for having me. This has been another episode of Network Reorient. Thank you for tuning in. Please have a listen to some of our other episodes and leave a rating.